0: Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. an absolute joy to be here. I I feel so at home here, as Darren said. There's a group of pastors from across the world, a lot from the States, some from the UK, some from Australia. We gather annually um, in California. Why California? Because it's California and no one wants to come to London at this time of year. Um, So we gather in California and and these pastors have become some of my closest friends. Um, So I hold this church in my heart. I've been praying for this church for over seven years, I know some of the stories, some of the breakthroughs, some of the struggles. And when you pray for something consistently, you, you really care passionately about it. So to be in the room amongst you, it is a total, total joy. So thanks so much for having me with you. Delight to be here. I know you're in this empowered series. So, um, I'm going to step right in and hopefully some slides might appear on the screen. I'm not sure the text's fully working. So you might need to control it from the back, but there's... I'm sure that will happen. Um, I'm going to speak about Spirit-empowered worship. If you've got a Bible, let's start in John chapter 4. I want to use this passage to launch into what I feel like the Lord is stirring in me as a gift for you from Scripture. And the context for this passage is a conversation about living water. Jesus engages in this conversation and offers the kind of water that enables people to, to not experience thirst again. In other words, to satisfy their deepest deepest longings and in this conversation Jesus says to this Samaritan woman he says a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshippers the father seeks and the question I really want to ask is, is what does that kind of worship look like? More specifically, what does it sound like? What is the sound of spirit-empowered worship? Worship that isn't just giving our intellectual agreement, mental assent, to uh, a set of propositions, but the kind of worship that bubbles up from within us as we give praise to God. What does that actually sound like? Is there a unique sound to worship that is offered in spirit and in truth? And the answer is yes. Let me tell you a bit of my story. So I was born 1979. So my childhood years were the 80s. Just an incredible time. Just put your hand up in the air for your childhood years were the 80s. Glory years. Glory years. We're talking Star Wars. We're talking Back to the Future. We're, we're talking Pet Shop Boys. Aha. Uh-huh. The A Team. I mean, it was a golden. Some of you have no idea. Maybe those. Okay, one person um, connects. Some of you are like what the heck. Um, if you were born later, you massively missed out. The eighties were an incredible time, um, both outside of the church but also inside of the church. Um, so what happened in the UK? It actually started here in, in California. Um, what we sometimes refer to as the charismatic renewal movement, an outpouring of the spirit and it birthed some incredible movements in the UK and far beyond the UK. Movements like Alpha that you've potentially heard of, the HDB movement, the vineyard movement that obviously was founded here in in California, a number of other house church movements in the UK and the list goes on. So churches that were kind of stuck in their way, spiritually dry, suddenly the Spirit began to flow and kingdom life began to break out. Now, I want to give you my perspective as a five, six, seven, eight year old um, walking into church during that season. It was normal for me to walk into the back of a room like this and see grown men and women on the floor weeping as they encountered the healing power of Jesus. It was normal to see people shaking as they encountered the power of of God in their human body. It was normal to hear regular stories of supernatural healing, signs and wonders. It wasn't like an annual story that we told repeatedly. It was like happening week in, week out. It was normal pretty much in every gathering for someone to be coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Not a trickle of salvation coming through the Alpha course, but week in, week out. It was normal to hear people screaming as they were delivered from demonic oppression. So as a seven, eight year old with a non-Christian buddy coming to church with me, I'd sometimes walk into the back. Someone would be screaming. I'd say, don't worry about that. They're getting getting set free from demonic oppression. Just don't worry about it. Let's head to the tuck shop and get some sweets. That was normal, right? That was normal. Now fast forward the clock 30 years or so. I refuse to embrace a new norm. I refuse to embrace the norm where we don't really encounter many supernatural healings in our gatherings. I refuse to embrace as a new norm just a trickle of salvation and to be content with that sort of a few stories coming through the alpha course. I refuse to embrace a new norm where we don't really do deliverance ministry anymore because we don't really know what that looks like in the context of the local church. I refuse to embrace a new norm where there isn't much power present in the people of God. I just refuse to embrace that as a new norm. So the deep cry of my heart has been the prayer of Habakkuk. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, but Lord, would you do it again? Would you do it here? Would you do it now? I've Seen what it looks like as a six, seven, eight-year-old. Like I've tasted and I've seen, and Lord, I want more of it. And I want the next generation to experience that. And I see the dryness in the landscape across the UK within the church. And I'm like, Lord, pour out your spirit. So a few years ago on sabbatical. I did a little tour of some sites where the Spirit of God had been poured out. So I spent a week in the Hebrides, this remote island up in Scotland, where in 1949 there'd been a major move of God. I got to meet some people that, um, in their 90s now, but when they were seven, eight, nine they experienced this move of the Spirit and they were still radiating with the presence of God. I went to the site of the 1904 move of the Spirit in Wales. Um, I came here to California to spend some time at Anaheim, partly because I wanted to be by the beach, but also to soak in the story of what happened in that charismatic renewal movement with Wimber and his buddies. And I was reading stories of the Azusa Street Revive and I was reading stories of the Evangelical Awakening. I was like, Lord, I, I just want to get like, deep in this appetite for a fresh move of God at this time and in in those stories in those conversations I realized there was certain common themes present in every move of the spirit let me just name two of them number one a movement of prayer there was a level of desperation in the church that people got on their knees basically saying God we need your spirit We we don't want to play games and just do church, going through the motions. We need your spirit. People were driven to their knees. And secondly, there was a movement of holiness. Now, when we talk about holiness in the church, our mind moves towards like upright living, like righteous living. I would describe that as the fruit of holiness. But can I just draw you into what the root of holiness is? The root of holiness is undivided devotion to Jesus. In other words, it begins in worship. And every move of God that I've named, there was a sound connected to the move of the Spirit. And the sound was worship, undivided devotion. So the Vineyard Movement that started here in California, and for whatever reason, God sent Wimber over to the UK, and it spread like wildfire across our land. The movement had a sound, and for some of you, you might remember the worship that came out of the Vineyard Movement, Touching the Father Heart cassettes. CDs weren't around, cassettes. Um, And and Wimber had a a dramatic conversion. He was a singer-songwriter in the Righteous Brothers. Came to faith in Jesus and decided, I want to start singing songs of devotion to Jesus. Not songs about drug, sex, rock and roll. Songs of intimacy to Jesus, like we know Wimber, um, at least in the UK, many of you will have heard of him as a theologian, a planter, a, a pastor, but at the core, he was a worship leader. Now, I'm going to try something. This really might crash, but let's just go with it. I'm going to sing a little refrain. And for those over the age of 40, if you were in the church, you might recognize and just sing back to me a refrain. Others, you're going to have no idea what's going on. Just enjoy this because this will be a car crash. I'm almost certain. But if I sang to you, isn't he? As I said, it was a car crash. Um, (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful, isn't he? Um, Anyway, that was a song that was known very much in the UK, less so here in California, obviously. Um, But the Vineyard movement had a sound and, and people were drawn towards intimacy and in that intimacy, the power began to flow. If you talk about the evangelical awakening, we often think of Wesley as this like preacher and he was, but do you know what the sound of the evangelical awakening was? It was worship. Charles and John, brothers, they wrote 6,500 hymns. We're still singing those hymns hundreds of years later, there was a sound. The Hebridean revival had a sound. If you, if you study the Hebridean revival, people constantly talk about singing the psalms, these Gaelic chants, singing the psalms together. Like revival meetings, apparently you could hear just singing and people were drawn to the singing. and They counted God and the power of his spirit. Think of the Azusa Street revival and, and essentially a genre of music that was birthed. When we hear gospel music, and the ripple effects of, of gospel music in terms of culture, it's incredible. But that was the sound of a move of the spirit. It was the sound of undivided devotion to Jesus. Lord, would you do it again? Lord, would you do it again? Movements of the spirit are birth when the church rediscovers how to worship in spirit and in truth. Holiness begins with worship. Listen to these words. This is a theologian, Chuck de who says, We need to reimagine holiness not through the lens of perfectionism, but through the lens of our utter oneness with God. Yes, there's a fruit that flows from holiness moral purity, being set apart for the purposes of God, living counterculturally, absolutely. But we start with the root, and the root leads to the fruit. And the root is undivided devotion. Listen to this prayer from Deuteronomy 6. If you were to ask people in the Jewish community about holiness, they're almost certain to quote this passage. This is perhaps the most formative of the prayers of the Jewish community, known as the Shema, as they pray day in, day out. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. That's the root, right? Right? And what flows from the root is the fruit. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts impress them on your kids. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, when you check your social media feed, that's the message translation. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. But there's a root to that kind of living And the root is undivided devotion to Jesus. You see this in the conversation that Jesus has. An expert of the law questions Jesus. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Remember, the the 10 commandments are a pathway to human flourishing. So when the expert says, like, what's the absolute central core component of of the 10 commandments, this vision for human flourishing? Jesus quotes the Shema. Is if you really want to get the essence of what it means to thrive as a human being, the answer is undivided devotion to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see this in the Ten Commandments themselves. The first three commandments are about worship. You shall have no other gods before me. I don't want any images. I don't want you to bow down to them or worship them. I don't want you to misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Then you've got the seven, you know, and obedience flows, but from the first three, which are about undivided devotion. And if you get rid of the first three, what you're left with is spiritual formation without undivided devotion. And we see that in the secular culture all around us. It is possible and it's happening on our watch to embrace a spirituality that has spiritual formation without undivided devotion. But spiritual formation without undivided devotion is a spirituality empty of power and empty of joy. Spiritual formation without undivided devotion is the kingdom without the king that's essentially secularism what's happening right now in culture is what secularism has done is like push God to one side we want to put the the rational autonomous self at the center of the story but we haven't been able to stamp out this yearning for transcendence the spiritual yearning at the core of our beings so it's fascinating to watch a younger generation longing to somehow connect with something higher. And what are they doing? They're rediscovering practices that come from the Judeo-Christian story. They're just pushing God to one side in the practices and pointing them towards the self. Let me give you some examples of these practices. Number one, I I read an article in a paper in the UK during lockdown about this guy who had this breakthrough discovery. He realized that if he spent a day off his devices, a day of digital disconnection, it brought life to him. And in this article, it's like, I've discovered fire. And you're like, no, you've discovered the Sabbath And the the church has been practicing Sabbaths for 2,000 years and the Jewish community for far longer. But he's like, I've discovered this thing, this this day of rest, this day of digital disconnection. It's unbelievable. And he gave all this research, the the effects on well-being. And his central argument is is the reason Sabbath is a really good idea. It helps you be present to yourself. That's not biblical understanding of the Sabbath, which is a day of worship to be present to Jesus redirecting the practice towards the self another example would be the secular version of mindfulness I know a lot of people are discovering mindfulness and it's an incredible gift but there is a secular vision of mindfulness and when you talk to people they'll often say like the goal is to be empty like just to empty yourself of negative thoughts and emotions which sounds like awful to me because what I want is to be filled with the presence of God like I, I want to be full of the love of the Father, not just about being empty. And a lot of people when they talk about mindfulness is like, do you know what? It really helps me be present to my self. I'm like, oh no, Christian meditation, Christian mindfulness throughout the centuries has been about exercises that help us be present to Jesus, present to Jesus. I watched this TED Talk. This is another practice, and I just found this one funny. Um, It was this lady talking about, if you have a high-pressure moment, let's say you've got a job interview or something that you need to G yourself up for. She, She said, don't make your body small just before you go into the interview. So don't be in the waiting room like hunched over. What you need to do is stand tall, hands up like this, which prepares your body and begins to shape a mindset. And the mindset is, I can do this, <laughs> right? Don't be small, go big. And I was watching, and I was like, that's just funny because that's the posture of worship. And the people of God have been doing that for like thousands of years. And the mindset hasn't been, I can do this. It's like, God can do this. These are spiritual practices that are moved away from being God-centered become self-centered and they're empty of power and because they're present all around us in secular culture people in the church are adopting them right and the church is losing spiritual vitality this is a summary of the story that we belong to it's a story that moves from the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, creation, and then creator order unravels through sin, which leads to decreation, the brokenness that we see all around us. And the rest of the story is the story moving towards recreation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The new creation breaks in upon us. Notice the center of the story is. It should be on the screen, really big. God, the center of the story is God. I just thought I'd help you out there. Um Needs to be bigger next time. Now, let me just compare this narrative. This is the shape of the Judeo-Christian story and worldview. Let me introduce you to the shape of secular thinking. So what happened during the Enlightenment, a number of thinkers said, look, we love the shape of the Judeo-Christian worldview. We like that it has a beginning. We like that it accounts for the brokenness that we see and experience all around us. We like that it has a linear view of time. And there's this kind of movement forwards towards perfection, towards this utopian vision. What we detest about the story is that God is at the centre of the story. So what we're going to do is we're going to push God to one side. We're going to put the rational, autonomous self at the centre of the story. But I want you to observe the language that was used in this kind of seismic shift in thinking. A movement from the dark ages towards enlightenment. Like That's just ripped out of the Gospels. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The Gospel writer said, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. Think of the language of Renaissance, French word meaning rebirth. That's just ripped out of the Gospels. Jesus in conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus wants to be part of this kingdom movement. Jesus says, if you want in, you need to be born again of the spirit. And the Enlightenment thinkers are like, oh, that sounds great, but we don't want to be born again of the spirit. We want to rebirth through human endeavor. Like we want to be the masters of our own destiny we want to orchestrate this utopian vision we want it to revolve around ourselves now notice the shape and notice the language this is why it's so disorientating for a younger demographic because the story sometimes looks christian and sounds christian here's the litmus test if christ isn't the centre of the story it fundamentally isn't christian If the cross isn't the centre of the remedy, it fundamentally isn't the kingdom remedy. All sorts of ills we see, you know, in in this day and age, we've been praying about some of the deep challenges happening in this nation, but globally, the church needs to rise up, not with this story, but with the kingdom story where Christ is the centre and the cross is the remedy. Tom Holland, the historian, not um, (laughs) Spider-Man... But who knows, Spider-Man might agree with this. There's every chance he would. Tom Holland, the historian in his book, um, Dominion, subtitle, The Making of the Western Mind, is basically a book about secularism. It's his observations of this new religion that we're seeing in the West. How does he describe secularism? Listen to this phrase. He describes it as godless Christianity. Christless Christianity. In other words, it's the kingdom without the king. This would be my analysis of this cultural moment. My analysis would be, there's three parts to it, that we've embraced secular narratives and the practices that I've mentioned connected to these narratives. We've embraced secular narratives that have been masquerading as kingdom narratives and embracing the narratives and the practices, the idols of our age, we've embraced. They've been smuggled into these stories. And these idols have emptied the church of power and spiritual vitality. Let me just name that again. We've embraced secular narratives, masquerading as kingdom narratives. Look Christian, sound Christian, but fundamentally aren't Christian. Smuggled into those narratives are the idols of our age. And these idols are emptying the church of power. And there is an opportunity for us to wake up. An opportunity for us to wake up. If you want the kingdom, it starts with undivided devotion to the king. This is what we see consistently in the New Testament. That, that if you put God first, if you seek first the kingdom, what do you get? If you seek first the kingdom, you get the kingdom. Right. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, where there is undivided devotion to Jesus, you will find the kingdom of God. And you'll find the spirit moving in power, bringing life. But we also know it to be true that misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. If you take your deep desires and they just move a little bit off the kingdom, suddenly everything begins to go wrong. Or to use Augustinian language, disordered loves lead to disordered lives. You can have good loves. If they're in the wrong order, your life will become disordered ordered so this is the wisdom of Augustine that we manage our desires by ordering our desires right we all know beneath the service there are so many competing desires like ambition in terms of career sexual desires like so many different desires what do we do with all these different desires and the answer is we manage the desires by ordering the desires who comes first God yeah undivided devotion to Jesus. Listen to these words of St. Augustine. The paraphrase has been love God and do what you like, which sounds amazing. Young people love that quote. Love God and do what you like as an ethical framework. Count me in. But let's actually read what St. Augustine said. He said, love God and do whatever you please for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. When you order your desires and you put The king first. Everything finds its rightful place. It all centres on worship. What if the church in this moment of history rediscovered worship and developed a new sound—the sound of undivided devotion? So, I want to look at what does undivided devotion actually look like. Now, we all know it involves the, the entirety of our lives. How we spend our money, how we engage in politics, how we go about dating, how we go about marriage or singleness, how we operate as an employee or an employer. It's the whole of our lives. But I just want to zoom in just for this morning. What does it look like in this gathered context? And to explore it a bit further, I I want to look at the five love languages. Put your hand in the air if you've read this book. This is what I love about the American church. Am I allowed to tease you for a moment? Um, when you come up with a good idea, you milk it for all it's worth, right? It's not sufficient just to have a book with the five love languages. There needs to be the five love languages for marriage and the five love languages for those that are dating and the five love languages for raising teenage children and the five love languages for how you engage with toddlers and the five love languages, how to nurture your pets. The only book there isn't a five love languages on is worship, which is crazy. So I'm gonna gonna step into the gap. And I wanna look, what, what do these five love languages look like for when the people of God gather together in worship? undivided devotion to Jesus. So let's start with words of affirmation. You know this, don't you? The tongue is the power of life and death. That we're made in the image and likeness of a God who creates through speech. He says, let there be light and there is. And we're made in his image and likeness. What we speak into the atmosphere transforms the atmosphere, right? So when we stand at a screen, And don't open our mouths and just read the lyrics. I know what you like because I know what I'm like. And you become a spectator thinking, I like this song. Oh, great chorus, cracking chorus. (laughs) Beautiful poetry, great turn of phrase. Wasn't expecting that rhyme there, but that works. That really works. And it's rammed with good theology. Tom Wright would be proud of that. Oh, amazing. And, and, and you basically have that kind of conversation internally. What's the difference between that and speaking the promises of God into the atmosphere? If we're made in the image and likeness of a God who creates through speech, when you sing the promises of God into the atmosphere, it transforms the atmosphere. Like we are trying to coach our church back in London out of spectating into find your voice in worship. If we're longing for a move of the Spirit and we've read the history books, we know there's a sound to what worship in spirit and truth actually looks and sounds like. Then we want to lift our voices in praise, speak truth into the atmosphere. Here's a truth we see time and time again in scripture that breakthroughs come as people find their voice in praise. And and I say this as a pastor and I can look back on parts of my life and parts of the life of the church that I lead. And I honestly think this to be true. There are breakthroughs that we haven't walked into because we didn't speak the promises of God into the atmosphere. We might have thought them or given sort of intellectual agreement, but we didn't proclaim them into the atmosphere and see the breakthroughs come about. Let me give you some examples of breakthroughs that come about through praise, like Jericho. The taking of Jericho, what an amazing story. That just before they go to Jericho, they camp on the other side of the Jordan and there's a moment of consecration where the fighting men are circumcised, right? Which is a horrible military strategy just before you go into war. You won't find that. I was like, I tell you what, let's weaken our fighting men and send them into battle. Right? But there is a principle behind it. God is saying, I'd rather you be weak but set apart than strong and operating in your own strength. I'd rather there be weakness with consecration than strength but with lukewarm worship. Right, divided devotion. And then they, they cross the Jordan and you know the story, they walk around Jericho and on the seventh day they walk around it seven times and then they lift a shout of praise and the walls come crashing down. It's the sound of praise that brings about the breakthrough. Well think of the story from 2 Chronicles 20. Three armies collaborate to form a vast army to come together to destroy the people of God. And King Jehoshaphat hears about this. He gathers the nation together and he gives a speech. Just listen to this speech. This is not what you want to hear from your commander in chief who basically gathers people, say, you might have heard some rumours, I just want to clarify, that three armies have collaborated. They want to destroy us. And I've consulted with our military advisors. Here's our conclusion. We have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. Um, <laughs> but, but it's actually worse than that. We don't know what to do. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we're powerless and we have no idea. And then come the words that change everything. But, he turns it to God now, but our eyes are on you. And those words just change everything. And then a prophet begins to speak. And the prophet says, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to face this battle. Take up your position. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go and face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. No, just the language. Stand firm. Here's the spiritual principle of, of spiritual warfare, right? You take ground as you stand your ground. You do the standing, God will do the advancing. Don't get cocky. I bat myself now. I'm just going to start advancing in my own strength. Now, you do the standing, God will do the advancing. Read Ephesians 6. Paul teaching the church on spiritual warfare. He talks about the armour of God. And then the primary verb that's used after that is stand your ground. And as you stand firm, God will do the advancing. But it isn't a passive standing. What do we do as we stand? We worship. We lift our voice in praise. So what happens in this story with Jehoshaphat? He basically sends the choir in front of the army and they march to the battleground with a refrain, give thanks to the Lord our God and King, his love endures forever. And when they get to the battleground, they realize the armies have turned on each other and destroyed one another. What brought about that kind of victory? Maybe the enemy heard the sound of praise, heard the sound of undivided devotion And they were terrified. The enemy is terrified of that sound in the church. The sound of undivided devotion to Jesus. Here's my encouragement. Be attentive to the songs we're singing in the church. Our songwriters are prophets. I think they speak the heart of the Father to the church. They grab hold of promises that we need to hear in this moment. Let me give you some examples. Can we just rewind to pre-pandemic, right? What were the songs that we were singing in the church? And I mean singing, every week singing, kind of loved the songs and then began to hate the songs because we sang them again and again and again and just kept on singing them. Let me give you some examples. I'll raise a hallelujah. Oh yeah, someone's ready to sing it again. In the presence of my enemy, I'll raise a hallelujah. Louder than the unbelief, I'll raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I'll raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. What do you think the Spirit was saying to the church? Could it have been, you guys are gonna find yourselves in a storm and there'll be moments where you feel overwhelmed, but you're not without power. You're not without any weapons. You do have a weapon. And the weapon is your praise and your thanksgiving. Let's think about another song. There's a table that you've prepared for me in the presence of my enemies. It's your body and blood you've shed for me. This is how I fight my battles. My weapon is praise and thanksgiving. This is how I fight my battles. Most people don't know the verses, but the chorus is killer. (laughs) This is how I fight my battles. And the middle eight gets even better. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. That was all right. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what a song. Like what, what a song. We were loving the song, right? But what was the spirit science trying to say to the church? You know, in, in what's coming, there'll be moments where you feel overwhelmed and completely surrounded. And, and you need to anchor yourself in some truth. The truth of Psalm 23, that you might end up walking through a really dark valley, but you're not alone. You have a shepherd walking you, and he will walk you, if you allow him to take you by the hand, to green pastures, to still waters, where the entirety of your being finds replenishment. And even in the midst of your enemies, there's a table prepared for you, and you can feast in the presence of the king. What's going to get you through? Undivided devotion to Jesus right what songs do we need right now be attentive to the songs that we're singing often they are the promises we most need to grab hold of in this moment let me close with this then physical touch what does worship look like when we worship God with our bodies we don't buy into enlightenment thinking that we're rational beings transported around by our bodies we worship God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Can I, can I tell you what is a pretty poor posture in worship? Just protecting your heart with high levels of disengagement. Postures in worship are incredibly important. And we've stopped teaching the church how to use your body in worship Can I just give a few pointers? It's not like dance moves, but just a a couple of ideas of how to use your body in worship. Sociologists and psychologists often say that emotion is essentially energy in motion. It's energy that moves in your body. So sadness is a movement downwards towards the ground. Fear is a movement outwards in every single direction. Joy rises in your body. like When you're soccer team your american football team it pains me calling it football but yeah when your team scores a goal it's instinctive right your body rises up like that like it's energy moving through your body so this is a gesture right but when you do it again and again and again it creates a posture the movements that happen in and through our bodies again and again and again create postures. Here's two truths that are simultaneously true. Our postures reflect our surroundings. They tell the story of what we've been through. Many of you have heard of the book, Your Body Keeps the Score. In other words, if you've walked through, and we have walked through, some really challenging months and years, your body will communicate something of that story. There was a lot of downward motion in your body right and we probably aren't walking quite as tall as we were a couple of years ago but here's another truth that we need to grab hold of our postures transform our surroundings they tell the story of what is to come right they tell the story of what is to come the people of God when they gather in worship and do this it's an act of defiance It's basically saying, God, I I put my hope somewhere else than just the circumstances around me. I put my hope in your nature and your goodness. And I'm going to remind myself of the end of the story, that you're going to return and complete what you started. And there'll be no more death, grief, crying, praying. You're going to make all things new. And as I contemplate the end of of the story, joy and hope rises in my body. Thomas Merton wrote, our lives are shaped by the end we live for. Our lives are shaped by the end we live for. And when we worship, something happens in our body that affects our mindset, that affects how we engage in our surroundings. Enables us to bring transformation to our surroundings. I've visited churches in different parts of the world where there is extreme poverty and extreme persecution. Do you want to know the sound of the church in those contexts? It's undivided devotion to Jesus. You're going to be hard pressed to find anyone just like this in worship in those contexts. They're like this. They're using their bodies to fan into flame the gift of faith to enable them to engage with what's going on all around them. Listen to the story of, of Caleb. Caleb was one of the 12 sent to the the promised land, Moses sends out the spies, bring back a report and they bring their report back. It's like, it's amazing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an, it's an incredible land, but there's giants in the land. And, and we've got no chance against the giants. And Joshua and Caleb had a different mindset. Listen to this. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We should go up and take possession. We can can do this. God is with us. I love this. I think there's a role for the church right now to speak to the surrounding culture where there's so much despair and say, shut up. Sometimes we need to do it to people within the body of Christ, where there is a posture of unbelief and cynicism. Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees because it spreads really, really fast. Sometimes you have to find your voice as a follower of Jesus when you constantly come up against cynicism and unbelief and you basically say, shut up, in a pastoral tone. Right? This is what Jesus did when he calmed the seas, the chaos. He speaks, be muzzled. We translate it often, be still. But essentially, it's shut up and peace breaks in. Caleb had that confidence, faith to silence the crowd and speak hope. The next chapter, listen to what it says as a description of of Caleb. This is God speaking over what set Caleb apart. He says, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Don't you love that? What are these two features we see in Caleb? He had a different spirit. We might call that a different posture. Everyone was walking around like this. We might as well just stay in the wilderness. It'll be awful, but it's the best we can hope for. And Caleb's there like that. Shut up. We can do this. Our God is able. And what was at the root of that faith? Followed God whole heartedly undivided devotion this is the summary of my message for you this morning if you want the kingdom all of the kingdom the justice of the kingdom the signs and wonders of the kingdom the salvation of the kingdom if you want it all it starts with undivided devotion to the king and that has a sound And it's the sound of God's people worshipping him in spirit and in truth. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.